Okay, let's uh, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, then we'll get started. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for um, this week at camp so far. God, for the things that you've been um, doing so far through the worship services, God. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us right now as we um, open up the subject, Lord, and um, look into your word and how we got it and whether or not it's trustworthy. God, I thank you in advance for leaving these clues for us to follow. Um, Lord, I pray that you would make my mind and my, uh, and my mouth clear as we're talking about this. I pray that I wouldn't be jumbly in my mind, God, that you keep all of us from distractions. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. First, let me say this is a huge, huge subject. Uh, people have spent their whole lives writing book after book after book on is the Bible reliable? Can we trust it? Um, so we're not going to be able to adequately cover it, um, or thoroughly cover it in a half an hour. Hopefully this is just a little taste so that uh, it can whet your appetite to go back and study more back at home uh, to know whether or not the scriptures are reliable. But this, like I say, this is a huge subject, and these are huge events that happen in the scriptures. These are events that, that are worldwide events uh, that everyone would know about in that time. They're so big that if they're true, that somebody had to write about them other than the Bible writers. Um, they're so big that they're like, uh, y'all know what I mean when I say 9-11, right? You guys are familiar with that? Um, yeah, like in between three and 4,000 people died that day. And I can just say those numbers, that was years ago, and you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, well, there's places in the Bible where there's 185,000 people wiped out in a night by the Lord. Another place where there's like 270,000 wiped out in a night by the Lord. If these, if these events, Christ's death, if they were so big as this, then somebody other than the Bible writers had to write about them, right? I mean, somebody did, if they actually happened. So we're going to look at four different areas on can we trust the Bible. Uh, the first one is the documents themselves. Uh, how did it get from what Peter and Paul wrote on to what we got today? How did that, how did that get here, and can those documents be trusted through the, through the years? Um, the second thing is the content. Aren't there a lot of contradictions in the Bible? How, how do we know that, the, that what's in the Scriptures is reliable? Um, the third thing we're going to look at is the canon. Y'all know what I mean when I say the canon? It's like um, who decides what's in the Bible and what's not. The canon is, is from a Greek word that means basically measuring rod. Um, so why does this book measure up to being in the Scriptures and this one not? Um, and the fourth area we're going to look at is Jesus himself. What outside evidence do we have for Jesus' life? If he's the central figure in history, what outside evidence do we have? So I'm going to try to talk fast, and then uh, we'll have hopefully time enough for questions afterwards. If I look at my phone, if it starts buzzing, it's because my wife is supposed to have a baby today or tomorrow. So uh, I may cut the breakout short, sprint out that way. Uh, so uh, the documents themselves. We say, and we believe, I believe this, and we believe as a ministry, and Chances are your church believes this as well, that the Bible is inerrant without error in its, in its original documents, that it's completely without error, that it's the inspired Word of God, that what we have in our hands in 2009 is the inspired, God-breathed Word of God. Y'all have heard that before, right, in your churches, hopefully? If you've not heard it, your churches probably believe it, the churches that are here. Um, and a lot of people say the Bible is inspired in its original documents. Well, the, the problem is we don't have the originals. You know, the stuff like Peter and Paul sat down and wrote on that these guys were 
moved by the Holy Spirit to write down this stuff on parchment or on vellum, or, you know, vellum's like calf skin, and parchment's like papyrus pressed down. Um, and they say this, that, it's, um, that it's inspired in its original documents. Well, we don't have the originals. Why, why wouldn't we have the originals? What Peter and Paul wrote on. What do you think? Yeah, they're old and shriveled up. Absolutely. Uh, they're super old, right? They're, I mean, a couple thousand years old. Y'all know what it's like if you got like a, uh, like a note or a to-do list or something, you put it in your pocket and you bring it out and look at it and you put it in your pocket and you bring it out and look at it. How long does that thing last? Like three days maybe? I can never, I never keep a to-do list through the week of camp. It always gets in the puddle jumping water or something weird like that. Um, so like imagine that we're an early church, that we're the church of Philippi, and all we got is the Old Testament to go on. And then Paul writes us a letter. And we're so excited to get this letter. And we'll see later on, the early church believed that Peter and Paul, like guys like that, that their writings were scripture right off the bat, just as much as the Old Testament. So imagine we get this letter. We're going to be super excited, right? And so like maybe it, we, my, me and my family would take it home the first night. We'd read it. We'd memorize it. We'd make copies of it. And then maybe the next night, Chance's family would take it. And they'd read it and make copies of it and study it. And then the next night, Chowder. And then, you know, it'd go on down the line. Well, how long is that thing going to last if it's being handled by that many people? Now, some little kid is going to spill wine on it or like it's, it's going to get messed up, right? So it's really important how these guys copied it, um, that they didn't make errors in copying. Because, you know, if, if one person messes it up a little bit and the next person messes it up a little bit, y'all know, have y'all played the telephone game before where like uh, I whisper something to chance and then he whispers it to Chad, and he whispers it, and he whispers it, and, he wh- and then it, by the time it gets back around to me, it's like a joke on my mom or something like that. Like, it's always a joke on a person that started it, which is really funny to me. Um, but like the same way with copying. If one person makes an error and the next person makes an error, I mean, it's very important to be exact. Like if I were to say this, Marty, if you fall asleep in this session, I promise I will throw trash juice all over you and uh, Maggie will punch you in the face. Um, somebody tell me exactly what I just said to Marty. Ready, say, go. Yeah. Yes, that's the gist of it. But somebody tell me exactly what I said word for word to Marty. Maggie. Very close. Very, very close. All right, so, like, we got a room of, what, 25, 30 people, like, and we can, I mean, we all get the gist of it, right? And, and if, if Maggie were to say that, that is so, I mean, I tried to trick her intentionally by pausing and putting the us in there and like, but I mean, we get the gist of it, we don't need to get it exactly right. It's really important if these guys are making copies, they get it exactly right. So it's not messed up. So uh, when these guys are making copies, they followed a lot of rules. Um, this slide they'll put up is from the Talmud, which is basically like a commentary on the rules that these guys would add in. Um, and it tells how these guys are supposed to copy in the, in the Jewish nation, like uh, when, they're, when the scribes are making copies of the Old Testament, this is the rules they had to follow. It talks about the skins they had to be written on, how they could be fastened together, the number of columns, I mean, it's very exact, the number of columns they could have, the length of each column. It goes on to talk about the ink and even what color it could be and what recipe it had to be after. And then look down at the last one. It says, an authentic copy must be the exemplar or the example from which the transcriber ought not in the least deviate. Then uh, skip, skip to the next one. There you go. No word or letter, not even a yod, which is this tiniest little letter in Hebrew, must be written from memory, the scribe not having looked at the codex before him. goes on to say, you know, between consonants, you have to put the space of a hair or a thread. And then 
uh, you know, just continues on with more and more and more rules. But look at this. It says not even uh, one letter can be written from memory. So how do you and I copy? Uh, if I were to put this up on the board and I would say, all right, everybody, take out your pens and paper. I want you all to copy this down. We copy by phrases. So we look up and say, no word or letter. No word or letter. Not even a yod. Not even a yod. Right? Like, that's just kind of natural how we copy things down. But these guys couldn't do that. They had to do letter by letter. So it'd be like, hmm, hmm, oh, oh. You know, and they go letter by letter and get it, get it exact. And then what they do is they count the number of letters. And they count it, and if it didn't match up exact the number to the original, they'd scrap it. They'd say it's only good for teaching kids how to read. Then once they finish, like, a larger section, like the first five books of the Old Testament, something like that, they start at the very first letter, which for them would probably be over here, but like they start at the first letter and count this way, and then they start at the back letter and count backwards, and they find the very middle letter, which is probably not that. But like they find the very middle letter, and if it didn't match up the exact same every time, they'd scrap it. I mean, they're very, very exact. Uh, and this is great because this is the culture that the Scripture's written in. And before this, before they had writing and stuff like that, they did the same thing with the oral stories. They had to get them exact. There's some cultures that are still out there today that they do their oral traditions, their oral stories the same way. That they have to tell them exact every time. They have to tell them the exact same because people want their history to be preserved without it playing the telephone game and getting messed up. So before the writing started, the oral tradition was very exact. And then once, once writing started, this is the culture that's born into, which is awesome. Now, obviously, some in the New Testament is written by Jews, some written by Greeks, but this is, this is the main culture. But even, even when it is written by Greeks, we believe the Holy Spirit guided these guys in how they made their copies and how uh, some of the Jews, some of the Greeks, some of the mixed folks, like how when they're reading it, we believe the Holy Spirit's guiding them and making their copies very, very exact. And there are so many copies floating out there, it'd be easy to pin down one that's messed up. Like if... Um, well, let me say this. There's three things that are very, very important when you're looking at any old book to determine whether or not the documents are reliable. The first thing is the number of copies that say the exact same thing. That's very huge. Let's say that that sentence that I said to Marty a little while ago, let's say I put it up on the screen and I said, all right, everybody, this is what I want you to copy down. Hey, Marty, if you fall asleep, I don't even remember it. If you fall asleep in the breakout or whatever. Let's say I put it up here and everybody copied it down exactly. Word for word, um for um you know, punctuation and everything, and then I took them up, at, like, and we had 30 copies that said the exact same thing. How sure can we be that that's what I actually said? We had 30 independent copies that said this is what he said. I mean, that's pretty reliable, right? 30 copies that said the same thing. How easy would it be to weed out one that's wrong? Like, if we had 29 that said the same thing, and then one that said, hey, Mary, instead of, hey, Marty. Like, how, <laughs> oh, Mary. Uh, like, how easy would that be to find out? That'd be pretty easy, right? Now, let's say, the, so the more copies you have, the more reliable it is. If we did it in the, in the big session instead of in here, and we had 360 copies that said the exact same thing, how easy would it be to weed out a contradiction in there? Or like one that's false? Or how sure could we be that that's what I actually said? Very sure. So the more copies you have, the more accurate it is. Uh, the second thing is the time gap. How much time has passed? from when this was originally written, from when Peter and Paul sat down and wrote this, to the earliest copy we got. How much time has elapsed there? And the third thing is, what outside this document points to what's inside this document as being true? Okay, so let's look at this chart. Um, Y'all read the Iliad and the Odyssey in school? Ever have to read those? Um, Homer's Iliad is actually a very reliable book as far as the documents go. 
written about 800 B.C. The earliest copies that are out there are about 400 B.C., which is a time gap about 400 years. Y'all know how the B.C. kind of works backwards, and then you get to the A.D. and it goes forwards. So the time gap's about 400 years. And you would think, that seems huge. Not really. I mean, to have a copy that dates back to 400 B.C., that's awesome. So, and to only have a time gap on something like that of 400 years, that's great. 643 copies. Remember, it's time gap, number of copies, and external evidence. Uh, 643 copies. Now, that doesn't have to be the whole book of the Iliad. That could be a sliver, a portion of the book, a chapter, whatever. Um, but 643 copies. So, as far as documents themselves go, this is a super, super reliable book. Um, we'll skip down here. Look at the New Testament. The New Testament is written somewhere between uh, AD 50 and 100, a little more or less, you know, depending on the book. Um, basically, the time gap between the fragments and books and the whole of the New Testament and most of it is 50 to 225 years. That's awesome. 50 years? That, I mean, it's really great. Look how many copies are out there. 5,366 at the time that the book I was studying in was written. There's more being found now. Um, just a lot, a lot of copies. Which is, I mean, just overwhelming when you look at something like, um, you know, Homer's Iliad being the most reliable we got with 643. Now this, the copies 5,366, that could be slivers, parts, um, you know, parts of a book, whole books, or the whole New Testament. Um, but like, look at this. Y'all heard of Plato? Y'all know who he is? He's like a philosopher that, I mean, everybody just loves. You know, everybody, when you go to philosophy in a few years at school, y'all going to talk about Plato a lot. Everybody banks on his writings and loves his writings, but look at what we got. A time gap of 1,300 years and only seven copies. But nobody's out there saying, you know, Plato, I, I, I don't know. I don't know about the documents, you know. And you skip down the New Testament, 5,366. That's ridiculous. Nobody's really, uh, we flipped that next screen. This is John Warwick Montgomery, and he says, to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. For no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. What the heck did that guy just say? Anybody take a stab at it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in a nutshell, like it's, he's saying if you're going to scrap the New Testament, you've got to scrap all these other books because as far as the documents go, the New Testament blows them out of the water. People, a lot of times, will read into a book what they want to see there. You know what I'm saying? Like, you read in your own bias a lot of times. Um, but as far as the Bible goes, no one's really questioning the documents. Uh, as far as is, are the documents themselves reliable, the main thing comes in the second of our four points that we're going to talk about, the content. Where people will, will question the Bible the most is they'll say, I don't believe the Bible because it's full of contradictions. Y'all heard that? No? It will... If, if, a couple of you have, maybe. You will. You will soon. If you turn on the TV and watch the History Channel or something like that, or once you go to school and start talking to more folks, people are going to say, I don't believe the Bible because it's so full of contradictions. And, you know, most of the time you'll say, like what? And they'll say, man, I don't know. It's just full of contradictions. You know, like they won't have one in mind. But sometimes they will, like this. Uh, in the book of Luke, it says that when Jesus ascended, he ascended to, um, from the town of Bethany. Well, in the book of Acts... It says when Jesus ascended that he ascended from the Mount of Olives. Town of Bethany, Mount of Olives. Which one is it? That's a contradiction in the scriptures, isn't it? Can we trust the Bible then if it says things that are wrong? Well, you know, two minutes of search on the internet will show you that um, Bethany and the Mount of Olives are about a sixth of a mile apart. So depending on your point of view, even depending on where you're standing, that'd be like saying 
Jesus ascended from Snowbird or Jesus ascended from the Goliath swing specifically. Because uh, a lot of the apparent contradictions that are in the Bible are from things like this. Um, like where a lot of folks believe that Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. So Luke may have been writing to a very specific crowd in Luke where he said Bethany because these guys would know Bethany. And in Acts he wrote just the Mount of Olives because everybody knows the Mount of Olives because David walked on it back in the Old Testament. But he may have been saying, oh, Bethany, to these guys, because they knew it. Like, for me, I grew up in Midland, Georgia. Anybody know where that's at? Midland, Georgia? Yeah? Exactly. Like, so, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Midland is, uh, like, when I went to college, when I went to Liberty, um, I'd say, folks would say, hey, man, where are you from? And I'd say, I'm from Midland, Georgia. And they'd be like, uh. Okay, I'm from Columbus, Georgia, which is a little bit bigger town right outside, a lot bigger town. Uh, and they'd be like, ah. And so I'd be like, I'm from Atlanta. I, I'm, I'm actually like an hour and a half south of Atlanta. But folks didn't know where Atlanta, I mean, where Columbus was, didn't know where Midland was, so I just, I'm from Atlanta. You know, and they'd be like, oh, great, that's, that's wonderful. You know, so a lot of times, y'all know how it is. If you live in a suburb of, of a place and no one knows where that is, you round up to the nearest big city a lot of times. So a lot of times, some, sometimes the place names are like this. Sometimes Luke will be talking to folks that, that know exactly where Bethany is. And then the group in Acts may be such a broad crowd that everybody be going, Bethany, Bethany, Bethany? Oh, the Mount of Olives. Okay, all right, I remember that story. You know what I'm saying? Some of the, um, some of the apparent contradictions are from things like place names changing, like the Pool of Bethesda, the Pool of Bethsaida. I mean, that thing's got like four different names. Um, most of the apparent contradictions, the one that, that people bring up in the scriptures, are from a poor understanding of doctrine, basically. That people would say things like, um, how can Jesus be God and man? I mean, either he's God or man. That's a contradiction in the Bible. Well, all right. Well, I mean, it's not necessarily a contradiction. That's a, just a poor understanding of theology, of how that works. You, you know what I'm saying? How can you say that, that God is Father and then it's the Holy Spirit and then he's Jesus? I mean, he's either one or the other, right? Well, that's not really a contradiction. That's just not understanding the story very well. Most of the contradictions are like that, where they don't understand the doctrine and don't really want to take the time to understand it well enough. Um, some other apparent contradictions are from things like genealogies, where it'll be going through and maybe in one book it'll give the, the genealogy like dad to son, dad to son, dad to son, dad to son, like that. And then in another, the genealogy between the same two people, instead of going dad to son, dad to son, it may take a rabbit trail over here and say dad to son to wife's family back to this family. You know what I'm saying? Just to highlight a certain person they wanted you to know was in his family. So the genealogies may differ a little bit like that. Just to show, hey, Rahab was in Jesus' family. And then, well, that didn't say that in the other one. Well, that's because they went on a different trail. You're, I mean, your family tree splits. Well, hopefully it does. Like splits in a large way, you know, and so you can follow it up of different branches. Some other apparent contradictions come from numbering. Um, in our culture, we have very specific numbering processes. We can go to satellites and things like that to number armies. In their day, they most likely stood on a hill and said, hey, man, how many people do you think are out there? 4,000. All right, 4,000. Then over here, Mark's writing his gospel, and it says, how many people are out there? I'd say about 5,000. All right, 5,000. You know what I'm saying? Like that, It wasn't like a satellite was looking down on them and saying, this many people. Uh, another thing is like their histories a lot of times aren't super accurate. So uh, there's a book up here called um, Ancient Iraq where it talks about these ancient Near East kings 
that every battle they fought so that their name would be great in history, they always say they won. Uh, so no matter if they won or lost, they tell their historian, hey, write down we won that one. Write down, you know, just so their history would always be seen as awesome. Um, and so a lot of the apparent contradictions are like that. Um, what's crazy about the content of the Bible is that the Bible was written over a period of a little over 1,500 years, which is a long time. Uh, it was written by over 40 different authors from every different walk of life. You've got fishermen, tax collectors, doctors, peasants, military leaders. Uh, it was written on three different continents. It was written uh, in three different languages. And despite all this diversity, it presents one unfolding story from beginning to end. And uh, really crazy with no contradictions. Excuse me. We'll talk about discrepancies here in a second. Um, but when you start talking about, like, it's, it's not like the Lord of the Rings, where one guy sits down, he writes a book, and he's like, oh, I better write a history, you know, like a backstory to all this. And so he writes the backstory, and he's like, oh, well, I better write how it ends up. All right, now I've got this one book. It took me three years. I mean, this is like 1,500 years. People, you have Isaiah writing hundreds of years before Jesus on a different continent in a different language, predicting things exactly that are going to happen in his life. Go to the Jesus and Fulfilled Prophecies breakout. I think it's on Thursday that Zach's teaching. It's really great. But I mean, even when you look at the prophecies, they really link together. It's really crazy with no contradictions. Um, the chances of that stuff happening are really, really crazy. Now, there are some places where there's discrepancies as far as the documents go. Because remember, we're looking at over 5,000 documents, you know, in this sliver here and this piece here. And uh, while we believe that God entrusted his word to humans, we believe that God guided those people's pens, even the ones that are making copies. And so, um, let's see. Uh, there are some variants within the text. Some are intentional, some are unintentional. Like this, intentional, uh, such as John 7:39, where uh, the text says in the Greek it says, "For not yet was the Spirit." Well, a scribe came along later and thought, "Man, that may be confusing. I'm gonna add the word given because the Spirit existed. He just wasn't, you know, given in the same way, you know, like he was given in, New in the New Testament times. He wasn't given yet, so he added in the word given. Now, the overwhelming amount of documents say just not yet was the Spirit. Kind of like the Marty thing. If somebody had the name Mary. You know, like you have 5,000 people saying Marty and then two or three saying Mary. It'd be easy to weed that out. Well, the scribe wrote that and a couple of copies came off of that. But the overwhelming majority, does this make sense what I'm saying? The overwhelming majority just says not yet was the Spirit. Now you have that scribe that wrote that and then a couple of copies after that. But it's easy to, to, uh, to squish those together, like to couple those together into one little fragment and say, all right, these... This is, this is this train of thought right here. But it's easy to, uh, the overwhelming evidence to the opposite. Uh, some other trivial uh, discrepancies are in Matthew 118, where most of them say the birth of Christ Jesus, but a couple say the birth of Jesus Christ. Pretty big deal, huh? I mean, like, this, this is the biggest stuff that folks come up with as far as discrepancies in the text. Um, a little more substantial are, are passages like John 8. Um, you ever been reading in the Gospels, you're reading in John, and you come up to John 7, and it says, right at the end of John 7, it says, some earliest manuscripts don't contain John 7, blah, 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 through 8, 11, or something like that. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery. Well, that's a case where you have the overwhelming amount of the, uh, of the documents that have that story in there, and a few of them that don't. And just so there's no confusion in your mind, they put the, some of the earliest documents don't have this passage. 
Now, the overwhelming majority of them do have it in there. There may have been a scribe who, uh, or two who, or however many that, that didn't put that story in there, but there's nothing in that story that alters the core meaning of the text. There's nothing that alters the core meaning of, of theology or Christ's work or anything like that, but I mean, the overwhelming majority of them have them in there. The most substantial that it gets, as far as variance within the scriptures, is the ending of Mark. Mark 16, 9 through 20. Um, this section, in some, is not, put in the, is not put in there. Like in some manuscripts, and it's divided pretty much 50-50. Uh, in some manuscripts, it doesn't have this ending. In some manuscripts, it does. But the same ending's in another gospel. So it's not like, uh, even if this ending's not put in there, that same ending's in another gospel. So there's, there's no place where there's a discrepancy where, there, where it affects the core meaning of the scriptures. Is this making sense? Do I need to stop for any questions right here? Okay. Um, all right, so, um, but the overwhelming majority, I mean, 5,366 manuscripts, it's easy to weed out a place where a scribe wrote, uh, some, some places like the text would be right here in the middle, and the scribe will be writing his own commentary over here, and sometimes places like this where there seems to be a discrepancy, uh, the scribe's commentary eases a little too close to the text, and the next guy thinks, oh, well, this is part of it over here, and he'll copy that part down as well. You know what I'm saying? So, um, third thing real quick, the canon. Who decided then what's going to be in the Bible? What books are going to be in the Bible and what are not? Um, so, obviously, there's going to be other stories arising about Jesus. A man's walking around healing folks. I mean, somebody walks through Jerusalem and says, man, this is crazy. I'm going to write a story about it. He may get all the details wrong. You know, but the guys who were there can say, no, it didn't happen like that at all. Because there's some books out there that said Jesus had a girlfriend, Jesus was married, maybe Jesus was a homosexual. Uh, like, and some of these books that say those things say some really, really weird things too. Like where Jesus says he's going to make Mary into a man. Um, another place where a kid bumps Jesus on the shoulder and he strikes him dead. Uh, another place where basically like Jesus walks out of the tomb and his head reaches to the heavens and his cross walks out of the tomb behind him and his cross is talking and preaching the gospel. I mean, just weird stuff. <laughs> Really weird stuff, and it's easy to see why the disciples were like, uh, no, that's not what happened at all. Because they were there, right? It'd be like me trying to, trying to say, like, hey, everybody, World War II never happened. Never happened. It was, it was a falsehood. It came from a battle that happened in, uh, in Hawaii, but it was done in a day. Well, if I were to say that, first of all, I should get beat up for it. Uh, but second of all, there'd be people who would come to me and say, no, no, I was there. You know, there are still veterans who are living today that would say, no, I was there. I, I, I watched this. This happened. I was here on this day. I can confirm this date. I can confirm this event. And the same thing happened in this day where guys are writing and the, the disciples in the early church are saying, no, not at all. I was there. You weren't even there. You weren't even in Jerusalem. You heard from Jim Bob who burnt, bumped into Jesus one day in the marketplace that this happened. But, so go to that breakout uh, as far as the false gospels. But... What's crazy as far as the canon goes and how we got the scriptures is that they didn't just sit down and have a vote like, all right, uh, at the Council of Nicaea, Council at Trent, something like that. They didn't just sit down and say, all right, who likes the gospel of Matthew? Raise your hand. All right, good. Good, I see those hands. Who likes the gospel of Terrell? All right. Sorry, guys. Sorry. It's out. You know, like, and so it, it's not like it happened with a vote like that and just like... Hope the Holy Spirit's backing us on this one. Uh, the early church were affirming these books as, as Scripture right off the bat. Like this, in 2 Peter 3.16, where um, 
Peter talks about Paul's letters not being in contrast with, with the Scriptures, but being among the other Scriptures. Um, in 1 Timothy 5.18, um, he gives a quote uh, from the Scriptures, Paul does, and he says, for the Scripture says, two things, uh, the Scripture says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treads the corn, which is a good take-home lesson for you guys today, uh, and also the laborer is worthy of his hire. Well, one of those is a quote from Deuteronomy, and the other one's a quote from Luke, which is really crazy for a Jew to say that what Luke's writing over there, a contemporary, a guy that I travel with, is as much the Bible, as much Scripture, as Deuteronomy is. Crazy. Crazy for a Jew to say. But they're saying, basically, the Holy Spirit is so infiltrating their writing, they're doing works by the Holy Spirit, they're clearly led by the Spirit, these guys are eyewitnesses or have met with Jesus, in the case of Paul on the road to Damascus, like they've met with Jesus, they have authority, uh, and these are the writers, and this is the message. The early church is affirming that right off the bat. And it's easy to weed out stories like a kid bumps Jesus on the shoulder and strikes him dead. It's just like, ah, sorry guys, uh, you know, I was there, That's, that sort of stuff never happened. Um, the last thing we'll look at is Jesus himself. Um, how do we know that Jesus actually existed? Uh, if he did, if he's the central figure in history, then somebody had to write about him other than the Bible writers and confirm something in his life, right? Um, this next slide is a guy, his name's Bertrand Russell. Um, he's a pretty famous a writer. He's a, um, excuse me, he was a professor, he's an atheist. Uh, I believe he's dead now, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and he said this, he said, historically it's quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all, and if he did, we don't know anything about him. You ever heard anything like that? Yeah. If, if you haven't, go to college. You will. You're going to hear stuff like this. And somebody who's a lot smarter than you is going to stand up and say, this guy, look at him. He looks crazy smart. He's got the old man, wild Einstein hair. He's got a suit on. If this guy were to stand behind a podium, and say, especially if he said it in an English accent, like, uh, and say, historically, it's quite doubtful. I, my English accent is terrible. Uh, like, and he said this, like, you're, you're going to hear this in a couple years. It's quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed. Uh, if this guy were to say this, test it. Test it by the scriptures, test it by the truth, test it by the evidence. So, uh, we're going to look at a couple of sources real quick. Uh, these are non-Christians, because there's great history out there that was written by Christians, but folks will say, of course they wrote stuff about Jesus, they're Christians. Um, so these are non-Christian sources, all but one are, non are not Jews. Um, so we'll look at this first one. This is a guy uh, named Tacitus. I want you to look at the dates of these guys that are, that are writing this. So soon after the time of Jesus, this guy's a Roman historian. He wrote just big books on Roman history. If you do any European studies, like European history, Roman history, anything like that, you're going to run into this guy for sure. And he's talking about Nero. He's just writing a history book, not interested in theology, and he says, hence to suppress the rumor, he, Nero, falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most exquisite tortures, persons commonly called Christians, who were hated for their enormities. Christus, Christ, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. But the pernicious superstition repressed for a time broke out again, not only through Judea where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. Look how many facts he puts in here. Not a Christian, not a Jew, just writing history. Um, Christ existed. He had followers named Christians. He founded the name. He was put to death. He was put to death by Pontius Pilate. Procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius is almost exactly what Luke calls Pilate. Uh, but the superstition that was repressed for a little while broke out again and now spread to Rome. What superstition is he talking about? What do you think? Yeah, the resurrection. 
Christ raised him from the dead. This superstition that Christ raised from the dead is now spread all the way to Rome. Um, what huge event happened while Jesus was on the cross that even if you weren't around that day, that you should have seen? Yeah, the sky turned black. You remember the veil tore, a lot of earthquake happened, but the sun went black. All right, if you're out rafting today on the Nantahala and the sun turns off for three hours, that's going to be a big deal, right? Folks are going to write stories about it, like you're going to see CNN. You're going to write, the day the sun went black, you know, like for months and months and months. So if that really happened, somebody had to write about that, right? This next one is um, Julius Africanus quoting Thallus in AD 52. It says, Thallus in the third book of his histories explains away this darkness as an eclipse of the sun. Unreasonably as it seems to me, because the solar eclipse cannot take place at the time of the full moon, and it was at the season of the Pascal full moon that Christ dies. It doesn't really matter what reason they come up with for why the sun went black. They could have been saying, it was aliens. You know, it doesn't really matter what reason they come up with. Just the fact that they're talking about it um, lends credibility to it. Because if it really happens, somebody's going to be talking about it. This next one's Mara Barserapion writing in AD 70 and uh, comparing Socrates, Pythagoras, and Jesus. What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? Just after that, the kingdom was abolished. God justly avenged these three wise men. The Athenians died of hunger. The Samians were overwhelmed by the sea. The Jews, ruined and driven from their land, lived in complete dispersion. But Socrates didn't die for good. He lived on the teachings of Plato. Pythagoras didn't die for good. He lived on the statue of Hera. Nor did the wise king die for good. He lived on the teachings which he had given. This next one is uh, Josephus. Uh, writing. He was born soon after Christ's death. Christ was 33 when he died. Um, there's more to this quote. But folks say, I think Christians might have added into that. I think that might have been just a Christian later edition. So all those things that might have been Christian later editions are all taken out. This is the bare bones what Josephus said. Um, look how many facts he puts in here about Jesus. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man. He was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross. Those that loved him at first did not forsake him. And the tribe of Christians so named for him are not extinct to this day. Josephus is a Jew but not a believer. He's writing big history books. One's uh, called Wars and another one's Antiquities. They're huge. They're still around. I mean, you can get them at Barnes & Noble, but don't because unless you're just really, really, really interested in Jewish history. But look how many facts he puts in here about Christ's life. Now there was about this time Jesus. Jesus existed. A wise man. He did miracles, wonderful works. He was a teacher. He taught men who received the truth with pleasure. He drew over Jews. He drew over Gentiles. Pilate put him to death. It wasn't Pilate's idea. Uh, Pilate put him to death on the cross, and Christians are still following him. From the mouth of non-believers, basically you have the whole gospel here. We'll flip back to Bertrand Russell, who says, uh, historically it's quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. And if he did, we don't know anything about him. Where's he at? There he is. Who, who's this guy reading? He's not reading the history books, right? He's not reading uh, the guys that were there. He's not reading Tacitus. He's not reading uh, jo <laughs> funny. He's not reading Tacitus or Josephus. He's not reading guys who were writing history at that time. He's just saying what he wants to say. Bertrand Russell ends up dying years later, and he says, "All my life I've searched for peace. I've found despair, anguish, and sorrow. Never peace." That's what Bertrand Russell says. And this guy's, I mean, people are going to say this mess to you and have no backing for it historically. So what people are saying to you, tested by the scriptures, 
tested by the truth. And what's great is that the Lord has left us breadcrumbs to follow. That he didn't just plop down a Bible, golden Bible out of the sky and say, believe that. There's no evidence for it, but believe it. I mean, there's breadcrumbs to follow so that we can see by archaeology, so that we can see by, I mean, even science, that we can see by, um, you know, the documents themselves, the content being so reliable, uh, the way that the Bible is transmitted to us, that we can be confident that the same Holy Spirit that guided the translation from the Old Testament, like, uh, like from the Greek to the English, is still the whole, that same Holy Spirit is still guiding the pens of missionaries who are writing the, the New Testament into different languages. I believe the Holy Spirit is guiding those folks still. And so that's really great that if the Holy Spirit, if God's sovereign enough to, to orchestrate every event of creation and of our lives, then He's sovereign enough to guide the pens as these guys write. Um, so it, it's for folks like me who came to Christ this way by saying, all right, is this for real? Is, is what my parents taught me for real? Is what Brother Don said every Sunday, is, was that for real? Is this legit? Is Christianity for real? Or, you know, because people are starting to say this sort of stuff. It, is this for real? Is this the truth? So God's not afraid for you to question this stuff. God's not afraid for you to search. And when you do, I mean, a lot of folks have really tried to disprove the Bible for 2,000 years. You know, folks have been trying to shoot holes in the New Testament, and there's not been one that stood. Most of those folks that do that end up becoming believers or just are so set in, I'm going to live however I want to live, despite the evidence to the contrary, I'm going to live however I want to live, and they'll stick with that. But most of these folks, like, um, you know, Josh McDowell did it, uh, but also like C.S. Lewis said, that he was the most reluctant convert ever to become a Christian. And basically that the Holy Spirit drugged him kicking and screaming to the cross. Because he set out to say, man, Christianity is false. And ended up saying, I believe it. It's the truth. The evidence out there. So, there's just a little bit to whet your appetites. Let me give you some book recommendations. Uh, this is Neil Lightfoot, How We Got the Bible. It's awesome. It's a good book. I just read it this year. Neil Lightfoot, How We Got the Bible. Uh, another one that I recommend to you is uh, Josh McDowell. It's uh, New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. This is uh, Neil Lightfoot, How We Got the Bible. Josh McDowell, New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. A really good one is William Lane Craig, C-R-A-I-G. He wrote a book called Reasonable Faith. It's a little more hard to understand, a little more intellectual. Uh, it's one of those you got to read the page and then reread it and then reread it and then maybe you start to get it, but it's really good. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the, also, you know, there's those books out there, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, things like that, that Lee Strobel wrote. Uh, Strobel is S-T-R-O-E-B-E-L, I believe, and those are good as well. Um, anybody need me to repeat the book recommendations? Okay, cool. Well, let me do this. I've talked for a long time, so I'm going to close this uh, in prayer. And then if you've got questions, come up and let's talk. Um, so let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's reliable. Thank you that we can bank on it. Uh, God, I pray that you would work divinely in these guys' minds and lives this week. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.